Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast chronicling horror in comic book form. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a look inside The Long Box of Darkness. Hi there, horror fiends. This is Herman from The Long Box of Darkness back with another episode. This one specifically, episode one of season two. That's right, season one is behind us. And I'm sorry to report that Misty will not be joining us for this episode. Uh, She might not be here for the foreseeable future. She's busy getting her uh, writing career um, in order. She's starting to write horror comics, and I can't wait for her first title or first short story, or whatever the case may be, to appear in print, and I'll let you know when that happens. So I'm flying it solo, but I do have a guest lined up for later in the show. Um, Right now, though, I'm going to introduce Season 2's theme. This time around, it's all about swamp monsters. That's right, that's how I got into horror comics way back when. uh, In the long box I was gifted by my uncle, there were lots of Swamp Thing comics in there, a couple of man things, and I fell in love with Swamp Monsters. And then when the Swamp Thing movie came around, directed by Wes Craven in the early 80s, that's what firmly cemented my love for swamp horror and the swamp creatures that haunted my dreams back then. Swamp Thing has always been my favorite, not just my favorite swamp monster, he's also my favorite monster, my favorite superhero-esque character, although that's debatable if you would call him a superhero. But I always saw him in that light since he was set in the DC universe. Still, I preferred him as a horror character set firmly in horror tales uh, with a mythology all of his own, uh, not superhero related. And though he interacted with the rest of DC, I, in my mind at least, I saw him off in his own universe of horror. So because of Swamp Thing, I got into horror comics in general and I still have a love for the character. And that's why I decided that season two of The Long Box of Darkness has to be centered around my favorite character of Swamp Thing. But that doesn't mean every episode of season two will be about uh, Alec Holland or the the non-Alec Holland Swamp Thing, which is actually my favorite as established by a certain Mr. Moore and the artist Stephen Bissett and Rick Veach and, of course, the great John Totalbin. No, 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 it won't all be about Swamp Thing. It'll be about swamp monsters in general, and, of course, then we'll veer off into different horror stories that are uh, not swamp monster-related. But uh, at least for the foreseeable future, our stories will entail swamp horror. So starting us off, I'm going to go way back, way back to the beginning, to a certain tale by... A Mr. Theodore Sturgeon called It. That's right, the horror comic subgenre began as a 1940s pulp magazine story, specifically a story in the pages of Unknown, the pulp magazine that was a competitor of Weird Tales at the time, and it was in its uh, issue dated August 1940. 
which was from volume three, number six. And that's where this short story by Theodore Sturgeon appeared. And uh, to give you a rough summary of the story, and later we'll, we'll get into Theodore Sturgeon as well, who's one of the great American writers in my mind, fantastic science fiction writer, uh, specializing in many genres, though. Um, this story concerns a muck-encrusted monster, um, which is basically a lot of uh, mud and leaves and uh, supernaturally glued together detritus wrapped around a dead man's skeleton who terrorizes the family of a local farm. It stalks through the forest near the farm, murdering small woodland creatures along its way, curious but not knowing what it is. It just uh, wants to understand the life around it. So in order to do that, it decides to study anatomy in a very uh, graphic and gross way by just pulling apart the bodies of all organic life it can find. And eventually it happens upon um, the brother of the farmer's dog, Kimbo. Now the farm family are called Drew. And they consist of Corey Drew, the farmer, and his wife. And then Alston Drew, his brother. And uh, Corey's little daughter, Babe. And uh, they've been living an idyllic life so far, uh, save for a brief incident the previous year where Uncle Alston saved Babe's life from a bear. Um, and Kimbo had a hand in that too, the dog. He held off the bear until Uncle Elston could uh, basically blow it away. And um, it seems that because of that event, it endeared Uncle Elston to the family. Before he was kind of like a black sheep, <laughs> but now they love him. But Corey still resents Elston for not helping out at the farm more often. Still, um, the, the dog Kimbo encounters this monstrous creature uh, it's attacked and then is torn apart and then Un Uncle Alston finds the remains of his beloved dog and decides to to stay in the woods until it can track down the creature that killed Kimbo now it probably suspects that it's not a man um, but it, it hopes it is a man and he's firmly set on blowing it away so uh, Corey tracks down his brother after he, he didn't come home for dinner and his brother is in a violent mood. He chases Corey away with a gun. And after that, uh, things escalate because uh, at night, the creature that stalks the woods became inactive and fell asleep. And then with sunrise, it rises again and uh, starts shambling through the wood. And that's when Alston comes upon it and starts blasting away at it to no avail. And Alston is horribly killed by this creature, this it. Um, and then, of course, Babe goes into the woods to help out Uncle Alston to search for him. She's afraid her daddy might do something bad to Uncle Alston after she heard him threatening Alston the previous night when they discussed Alston putting, pulling a gun on her father. And then uh, Babe uh, goes to the place where she and Uncle Alston used to meet near the river. Uh, and she waits for him, but not knowing that he's already dead. Meanwhile, Corey drew the farmer... He goes looking for Babe and for Uncle Alston. They heard the gunshots and uh, they did not, though, hear Alston's dying scream, which was, in fact, heard, heard by a lawyer um, who's uh, in the vicinity uh, looking for the dead body of a man who left behind a will. And uh, this lawyer is frightened uh, after hearing the shots. He hides and he's 
uh, discovered by uh, Corey Drew, who sends him to the farm uh, because he got hurt. <laughs> Corey basically blasted at a at, at a bush where he was hiding in, and the lawyer got his hand clipped by a stray bullet. So not too bad, though. He's sent to the farm to get himself patched up, and then Corey continues his hunt for his brother, and he comes upon the remains of Alston. And he's appropriately shocked. And then he hears Babe crying because the creature had followed Babe and tracked her down to the secret nook in a cliff near the river where she used to meet with her uncle Alston. And Babe is hiding inside this small crevice trying to get away from the creature who just keeps squeezing into the gap uh, and then eventually grabs a hold of her hair after eerily and slimily running its finger down her spine. And it pulls her out and she faints. And uh, because of her uh, inactive state, the creature loses interest and just tosses her aside and just decides to devastate her lunchbox and rip apart the metal container and the sandwiches within. So luckily for her. And then that's when she wakes, screams and dives into the river and is pursued by the creature who then enters the the fast moving brook um, after her and is then washed away. Well, first he's damaged by a, a, a boulder hurled by... Well, not a boulder, a large stone hurled by Babe. And then the water sort of slows away the muck, and eventually the creature dies a second time as it's only its skeleton is left, sweep, swept clean by the waters of the brook. And that is the skeleton of the man that the lawyer was looking for, um, and there's a reward for finding his body. So Corey Drew happens upon Babe, in a traumatized state, probably permanently and uh, mentally scarred. Um, and then they claim the reward for the money, you know, after finding the, the corpse of this dead man, still uh, lasting scars left by the experience that no amount of cash could ever erase. And so Babe still wakes up in the night screaming. And the family has been permanently affected by the death of Alston and Kimbo and about this horrific experience with this swamp creature. And that's the story. And it's presented not only in Theodore Sturgeon's many short story collections up, up to this date. It's also available in comic book form. And that's specifically what I'm going to mention today. Supernatural Thrillers, number one from Marvel Comics. That's right. Roy Thomas, he was the editor at the time. He was also the writer on this issue, and he got Marie Severin, a legend in her own right from the EC days, as well as uh, Frank Giacoya to do the art. And Supernatural Thrillers number one was Marvel's attempt to seriously get into the revival of the horror genre in comic book form in the early 1970s. This was a 1972 issue. And uh, heretofore, they had been reprinting old 1950s horror by Stanley and Jack Kirby and others, uh, stories in the public domain. But um, this was a serious effort, like I say. And since Roy had already adapted uh, stories by Conan, uh, Conan the Barbarian, stories from Robert E. Howard, he had gotten the okay from Martin Goodman, the publisher at Marvel, to offer $150 to adapt uh, any of the works of uh, these more literary-esque writers. Uh, so he had approached Glenn Lord, and with success, they had published Conan, Cull, and, and others. And now he tried his hand at publishing a horror story from Theo Theodore Sturgeon. So um, he phoned up Theodore Sturgeon one night 
while he and his first wife Jeannie and and uh, his good friend Jerry Conway were having dinner and then uh, managed to work up the nerve to talk to the great man Theodore Sturgeon on the phone he offered him $150 to adapt it uh, in comic book form and Theodore Sturgeon gave the go-ahead because apparently he needed the money for an alimony payment and then that was it Roy got the art team together he wrote the story himself adapted it a lot of its Theodore Sturgeon's direct words taken from the short story used in the narrative of the tale and it was a huge success uh, fantastic art uh, great uh, adaptation by Roy and uh, very frightening and eerie I would say because it contains all the elements of horror that I love in let's say a very good Stephen King book it has uh, the horror from a child's perspective and this time in the form of the babe it has uh, a horrific scene if you're an animal lover of course this would turn a lot of people off but um, they don't show it it's sort of left up to your imagination uh, but it's frightening definitely uh, where the dog Kimbo is killed and then it's got these uh, drawn-out scenes of the monster stalking people through these eerie woods and also of babe trapped in the the aperture between these two cliffs and where he slowly the the monster squeezes in to try to get to her so fantastic uh you know pacing and eerie atmosphere evoked by the art and by the writing the words of theodore sturgeon and the way roy adapted it and that is of course uh, if i can give you more details about this comic per se it is specifically uh th supernatural thrillers and that was uh cover dated december 1972 but on sale august of 1972 and the cover is by the master jim steranko and it shows theodore sturgeon's classic monster and the title the thing that couldn't die and the the name of the supernatural thrillers issue is just it exclamation mark and it's got the classic uh horror logo uh, as a corner box art where this wolf is howling up at the moon so a must read issue for sure if you're a horror fan uh, but that's not where it stopped you know these are some of the earliest swamp monster tales that i read i probably read supernatural thrillers which was in that very long box that i had as a kid um, at the same time as I read Swamp Thing. And I, I did not see them in the same light because Swamp Thing is decidedly more humanoid. He's not this sh shambling pile of what looks to be trash <laughs> walking around the forest. Uh, but um, Swamp Thing also had more human features in his face, making him more expressive. And uh, he had thought bubbles. He interacted with the reader and with characters in the book. But now, of course, I can understand they all cut from the same cloth. And um, I loved the comic back then, but it scared me. And that's why I liked it, because I found these frightening tales alluring. And that's what kept me coming back to horror again and again over the years. Uh, but there was another tale I read at the same time. Um, and that was from Mad Magazine stalwart artist, who actually make, made a name for himself as a science fiction and horror comic artist in the 1950s before he became a mad artist. And that is one Basil Wolverton. That's right. Basil Wolverton did a story um, that I read fairly early on, probably not at the same time as I read Swamp Thing and Theodore Sturgeon's It in Supernatural Thrillers, but definitely around that time. 
and that was the story called Swamp Monster. Um, this story was uh, a favorite of mine because of the art. It was first printed in Weird Mysteries number no. 5 in June of 1935. Um, now, Basil Wilton being the artist, he was not the writer though. The writer is uncredited and unknown. But this tale features the story of Killer Cabot, who flees the hangman's noose by running into the swamps to escape his pursuers, the local sheriff and his posse, who have some dogs uh, along for the ride hunting Killer Cabot as he flees through the swamp. He happens upon this old farmhouse where this eerie old man lives and Killer Cabot forces his way into the house. He says, if you tell anybody I'm here, you're dead. I'm pursued uh, by the law. And the old man says, oh, well, I can help you. I can change your face for you. And Killer Cabot says, what, are you a plastic surgeon? The old man says, no, 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 I'm something much, much better than that. And he rips into Killer Cabot's neck, sporting these huge fangs. And Killer Cabot is lying prone on the floor for a couple of hours. And when he wakes up, he turns into this horrible werewolf-like creature. It looks kind of like a werewolf mixed with a hog, but still humanoid shaped. And he's got these long fangs and claws and this ridiculous looking snout, but it's very scary. He's still got his crew cut. <laughs> and then when he finally confronts the old man who seems to be a vampire, Killer Cabot turns murderous, trying to live up to his name, but the old man turns into mist and laughs at him and says, no, I've given you what you want. I've uh, given you the body that conforms to the level of your mind. And since you have the mind of a fiend, you have now become one. Killer Cabot, uh, Cabot rips a post out of the stairway, uh, the stairwell, and he tries to take a swing at the old man, but um, the vampire-like uh, elderly gentleman morphs into a bat and then flies away. And that's when the sheriff and his posse show up. And Killer Cabot scares them away by grabbing their guns and snapping it in two. And as the the law flees through the swamp. Killer Cabot pursues him, their monkey-like, swinging through the trees. But then he gets ahead of himself and he tries to leap upon them and rip them apart. As he hurtles towards them, a vine wraps itself around his neck. And uh, the hangman noose, in fact, caught up with Killer Cabot. His neck snaps and he dangles from the tree in the swamp, dead. And uh, the sheriff and his posse look on amazed as this happens because... Killer Cabot transforms back into his human self. And then they're pursued at the end of the tale by this vampire bat that the old man has morphed into, chasing them from the swamp, leaving Killer Cabot to hang there in the swamp, dying a lonely death, with the sound of the vampire's laughter echoing through the, the swamp in the very last panel. So fantastic swamp monster story there by Basil Wolverton and that's one of the greats in fact you can find it if you if you're so inclined in a recent uh, collection released by uh, Craig Yo classic monsters of pre-code horror comics this one entitled Swamp Monsters and that's like I say released by Yo Books um, I love these collections featuring these old eerie publication stories and uh, you know pre-code horror stories that Craig Yo has been collecting and that's one of the best so try to pick that up. I, I don't know if it's still in print, though. You might find it on places like Book Depository or um, secondhand sellers on Amazon or on eBay, of course. Uh, you can also find it digitally on Comixology. And that's where you can read this story by Basil Wolverton, Swamp Monster. 
So, you know, uh, that is basically what made me fall in love with Swamp Horror, not just Swamp Thing, but also Theodore Sturgeon's tale as adapted by Marvel in Supernatural Thrillers number one. And then this story by Basil Wolverton, and that also um, affirmed my love for Wolverton's art. And I'll be doing a whole episode on, on Basil uh, later on in season two of Laud. But right now, now that I've uh, bored you <laughs> all to tears, or hopefully horrified you with how I got into Swamp Monsters, I'm going to present someone who's been a staunch supporter of the Long Box of Darkness and also of our other shows. Um, this gentleman has supported us on Patreon, uh, on our Into the Weird show. He's a listener of our All-Star Squadron podcast, The World on Fire, and our Infinity Inc. podcast, which has recently launched called Star Rocket Radio. Uh, but I think his first and foremost uh, uh, love is for horror comics. And uh, he, you know, is a, a writer, uh, frequent emails to our shows, and uh, he's been on other podcasts as well. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Mr. Gary Arkell to the show. How you doing? Yeah, I can't complain, Gary. I'm just happy to have you on the show. Finally, you know, you and I've been emailing back and forth for a while now. So thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I, I haven't been like like doing a lot of iTunes reviews, and and but I have been emailing you and and trying to get in contact with you. Yeah, no, um, I mean you've been a supporter of the show in many ways, so you know uh, it doesn't always have to be with an iTunes review. You know, you're a patron. You're you know uh, constantly um, you know giving us feedback on episodes, uh, which we like to mention on the show as well. So, Gary, thanks, man. So Gary, now, as is the tradition here and on many other shows, when we have a new guest on, we want to get to know you a bit better. And um, I always ask, how did you get into comics? And then we go into specifics about what we're going to be talking about today. But first, I want to know, what is your comic book fan origin? How did you get into comics way back when? Well, I, I was reading as a little kid, like during the 60s. But that was when I really didn't understand what I was reading and mainly looking at the pictures. Now, what happened was, is during the um, 70s, I started getting bored of watching baseball on TV. And uh, my aunt was coming over from Boston. And she, her, one of her nephew, sons was really into Marvel. He was what you call a Marvel zombie. Mm. And um, he he has some DCs, I guess, that he didn't really care about. So she brought them over on her trip. And there were about 15 or 20 DCs that um, she gave to me to read. And I kept on reading them and, and really enjoying them. And there must have been recent issues because a couple of the stories were continued. And in a couple of weeks, I was able to go to the stores nearby and, and buy the next issue. And so I started buying certain comics regularly, mostly DC, like Flash, um, Justice League, different comics like that, Batman. Mm. And then, but I really didn't, the funny thing was, is when I was in school in my neighborhood, there weren't too many kids who were like reading comics or actively admitting that they were reading comics. Right, and that was during the age when when it was so supposedly uncool to be reading comics. So, 
Um, I do remember like going to lunch one day and, and admitting to somebody that uh, that I read comics and, and they and then they introduced me to this kid named Bob Brown in school who also read comics and he was actively collecting. So um, I started talking to him and following him to the neighborhood store and seeing what he was buying and then buying similar titles. Although he was mainly collecting Marvel, but he also bought DC. Hmm. And um, at that time, the comics were 20 cents. (laughs) Yeah. And you you could basically... Like buy like ten series or fifteen series every month, yeah. And still, you would only spend twenty two dollars or, or yeah, <laughs> or three dollars. Exactly. Wow! <laughs> Let's get a time machine, was, Gary, and go back there, man. Because <laughs> I know, I know. I would, I would go and, and cut a lawn every week and get like six or seven dollars for that for the cutting that lawn and then that would be my spending money for for like a month on comics and and then the rest of the times that i was cutting lawns i'd put the money away yeah it's fantastic you know, so uh, it, it was amazing and i remember when swamp thing first started i um i didn't buy like the first couple of issues and at the same time marvel had a similar series man thing and so Bob was always um, pushing Marvel on me, and and I would say no, I, I like my DC, and he would say, oh, Man Thing's much better than Swamp Thing, and I and I would say, no, I don't think so, but but they're very similar. <laughs> yeah, it's one of that. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is is to this day, um, I guess both creators don't don't admit that they that they copied each other or the, or they had similar ideas coming at the same time um I don't, I don't to this day i don't think they know which one really um i mean they know which one hit the stands at at first but they don't know really know which one created was yeah created at first yeah it's kind of like the whole doom patrol x-men debate too you know it was right. in, in the zeitgeist at the time and of course since uh, len ween then after he you know uh, wrote swamp things uh, first appearance and the the first issue of swamp thing he went over to marvel and he did in fact write a man thing story as well because mm. you know yeah, they were yeah. freelancing all the time plus he and jerry conway were friends at the time and jerry was working on the savage tales man thing uh, you know right. issue so you know i don't blame these guys for throwing ideas back and forth and then it it, it went to print, you know. I'm just glad nobody sued over it, right, Gary? Because <laughs> well, they, I think, I think they all knew each other really, even though they would be working for separate companies and they mm. would be freelancing. Yeah, and 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 I heard stories that sometimes they would go into somebody's apartment because, like, lots of times they would live somewhere else, mm. not in New York City, and then they would come into New York City to bring in their stories. And then if they stayed too late, then they would sleep on in somebody's apartment. I, I forget whose it was. And so sometimes you'd have a Marvel person and a DC person in the same apartment. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's... And so many times that they switch companies anyway, I think <laughs> after a while it really didn't matter. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, Len Wein and Marv Wolfman, they were editors at Marvel at some point when they were still really young. Then they jumped ship to DC. So... Yeah, that happened a lot with different guys as well. And the artists were freelancing all over the place. 
you know so you're right they they were throwing ideas around you know who knows what they were talking about when they got high or drunk or who you know during get togethers <laughs> but you know um i don't mind i i'm just glad we got both of those characters you know because they're yes. both some of my favorites and gary would it be fair to say that swamp thing is one of your favorite uh characters uh, all across the board not just from dc uh yeah, yeah, he was one of my favorite, particularly during this era. Mm, mm. I mean, the more the more was the more stuff was also very very good, but but it was a different flavor than than the original. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends on like uh, what you encountered first. I think for me, I did encounter this original Swamp Thing first in Volume One. I had a couple of issues in my in a long box that was gifted to me by a family member. Uh, when I was very, very young. But um, I didn't appreciate them until much later in life, if you know what I mean, uh, Gary. Right. And they didn't disturb me at all. They were fun to read, you know. Um, but then when I uh, was a little bit older, maybe 10 or so, that's when the Moor Run kicked off. And that's those comics really disturbed me. You know, they were upsetting. They were, you know, horrific. But I kept coming back to them. So for me, the Moor Run is a totally different beast <laughs> but um well the, the more one was doing the um the 80s right yeah so yeah 84 i yeah. was already a young 20 year old and i was mm. i was working at that time so i would i didn't read that as a child yeah i understand i i this, don't... this i read as as a child and and i thought it was very cool and and yeah it was sort of like a horror character similar to like a frankenstein or Excellent. Yeah, the kind of things that, that kids would be into if you're a monster kid. You know, the Aurora model kids and, and all of that. Now you've got this new monster, Swamp Thing, around. A another new monster to add to the stable. I, I know exactly how you feel. I can't yeah. pick between the two runs, of course. I Moore's run is definitely the more disturbing one, if, if you're looking at it from a purely horror perspective. But um, the classic Swamp Thing is definitely this first uh, volume by its original creators, um, which, of course, is Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson. Um, so, you know, uh, th that's why I'm glad you picked this, Gary, because initially, you know, I asked you what you would like to talk about, and you said right. Swamp Thing, uh, issues 6 to 10, and uh, I was very happy about that because, you know, we're the season 2 of Long Box of Darkness is Swamp Monster-themed. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd also, hmm. like, wanted to do some Kirby monsters, but... I couldn't find them on, on, on the Marvel Unlimited. Yeah, why? I mean, the Kirby monsters would be from the 50s. I know they've collected them in various Omnibuy uh, lately, but, you know, I don't own any of them, although I do have a lot of uh, those old issues from the 50s. And that would be a great topic, too, if you ever want to return to the Long Box of Darkness. Gary, we can definitely throw that in there because... Uh, Kirby got, you know, his his imagination is not only for sci-fi and superheroes. It also has the grotesque, you know, and the horrific in there. <laughs> <laughs> and those monsters are classics, you know. And they're all, uh, you know, based off of EC tales in any way. I mean, the stories, not the monsters. Uh, you yeah, know, well, the, I, I used to have a lot of the um, 70 reprint issues, um, like where monsters dwell, mm. and I... I used to read those over and over again, and they also had Ditko stories in there. Oh yeah, Ditko that uh, I used to I used to love. You know, like 
Yeah, Ditko's ideal for horror, you know, and and since he was around at the time in the late 50s, did a lot of stories with Stan Lee long before Marvel kicked off their superhero line. Uh, You're right, Ditko and Kirby, they were there from the beginning and they started off with doing monster stories for Timely or for Atlas Comics at the time. So, um, you know, we got to talk about that down the line, definitely, Gary. I don't think I know anybody else who would be willing... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to come on the long box <laughs> so it's great that you that you made me aware of, of that so i'll definitely have sure. you back but gary um this just to give my listeners a little bit of a more context uh billy and i recently we discussed uh, saga of the swamp oh, or we discussed something volume one issues six and seven uh on ryan daly's midnight the podcasting hour that was last year and uh, Midnight the Podcasting Hour, great horror show focusing on DC horror has since ended. But if, I, if our listeners want to get a bit of context for what we're going to be talking about today, they can go back and listen to Ryan's old episodes about Swamp Thing. He covered issues one uh, from the first series. Uh, and of course, he talked about the House of Secrets uh, issue in which Swamp Thing appeared, uh, issue 92 from 1971. And then, of course, uh, you can listen to those. And then, but he did not cover the end of the Bernie Wrightson and Len Wein uh, run, which is, of course, what we're going to be talking about today. We're specifically going to be talking about issues nine and ten, which you picked as well, Gary. So I just want the listeners to know where we where we're at at the moment. Um, basically, just to give the people who are unfamiliar with Swamp Thing a little bit of history again. Uh, I've never really talked much about Swamp Thing Volume 1 on the show. Uh, I kind of left Ryan Daly to do that on his Midnight the Podcasting Hour. You know, we had like sort of an agreement. Not really an agreement, but, you know, um, I, I left him to do most of the DC horror. You know what I mean, uh, right, uh, Gary? Right. So, And uh, since we collaborated a lot, I, I was fine with that. But now that Midnight's gone, I'm going to be talking Swamp Thing again. But I still miss that show. That was a great show. So, of course, uh, you know, it turns, well, uh, doing some research in issues like Back Issue Issue Magazine and that excellent uh, Tomorrow's publication, Swamp Man, uh, you get some more in-depth knowledge about how how Swamp Thing came to be, his dark genesis, as they call it, right? Which is one of uh, the the title of the very first issue of Volume 1. And um, apparently, you know, uh, Joe Orlando, of course, he had a lot to do with it, but uh, Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson, they pitched him a, an idea uh, for this monster story, but it's a very much Victorian-era monster story. And then Orlando went for it because, you know, he's a fan of horror. He used to be involved with the Creepy and Eerie magazines and, of course, EC way back in the day. And then, um, you know, they came up with the story of Alex Olsen, uh, betrayed by his friend Damien Ridge, uh, who wants, wanted to woo Alex's wife, Linda. And that was in the 19th century. And then, of course, uh, it ended in Alex becoming a swamp monster. You know, he was a chemist. Um, you know, there were all the, the, the classic tropes of Gothic literature was in there. Betrayal, murder, death. And then uh, he became a swamp monster. And that issue proved so popular, right, Gary, that it even outsold Superman. Issue 92 of the House of Secrets. And okay, be- I didn't know that that's outsold. Yeah, it was yeah. hugely popular, and not only did it outsell Superman, it was the uh, the issue at the time that got the most feedback, the most letters written in from readers. Uh, no other issue in the history of um, DC at the time had gotten that much feedback. 
So because of that, Orlando immediately got Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson uh, to try to come up with a, a series based off of around this character. But they didn't want to. They were reluctant to do that. So it took them a year, basically a year of Orlando having to persuade them to get back in the saddle and come up with something. So um, Wien eventually decided he can't set this in, in the Victorian era indefinitely. So he would have to make it something more modern. Plus, Bernie Wrightson didn't really want to touch that old story again. He loved it so much. He thought it was fine on its own. But when Wien came up with this new concept, you know, basically pitching it as a different character, Bernie went for it. And thank God that he did. <laughs> right, Gary? Otherwise, we wouldn't have maybe Bernie Wrightson on the first 10 issues. We wouldn't have Wrightson on Swamp Thing at all if he didn't go for it. And so... Well, I, I remember... Mm -hmm. I think I read the, the first story once or twice as a reprint, and I remember reading issue number one, and there was certain differences, but I, I, I hadn't, like, remembered that the, 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 the first one was more gothic and, and took place at a different time. Yeah, yeah, it was um, a completely different time. And um, you see that, and I think it's, it was reprinted again in Alan Moore's run of Volume 2, uh, where Abby Cable had a dream, and then they, they insert that story in there, the original, just to explain okay. why there are these two stories of Swamp Thing. And then they, it kind of makes sense why, you know, um, uh, kind of the idea that there will always be a Swamp Thing, a champion of the green. The palm of trees. Yeah, that, that whole arc, yes. But over here, you know, um, they just decided to to keep that story in its own universe. They wouldn't link it to DC as a whole. And then they put Swamp Thing in Volume 1 firmly into the DC universe. So they kind of just ignored the fact, you know, continuity when it came to the anthology titles. <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's what, what explains things like Weird War Tales and, and Sergeant Rock never really coinciding, you know. And um, why so many, you know, Weird War Tales issues has an ending to the war different than, you know, what Sergeant, what's happening in the <laughs> Sergeant Rock comics. So, you know, then basically Swamp Thing hit it off big time. Uh, it was a very popular series right off the get-go. And um, uh, Orlando was still editing. Uh, and Bernie Wrightson stayed on for, of course, 10 issues. Len Wein stayed on a little bit longer than that. But, you know, Bernie is notoriously slow. Uh, but but rightfully so, because he churns out fantastic pieces and fantastic work. You don't want to rush yeah. a guy like that. But um, I, I met him once at a convention. Wow. And um, I, I told him that, 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 that I, I said, what, why didn't you stay on Swamp Thing longer? And he said, well, he said, Len was also running out of ideas. Mm. And um, he, he wanted... Righteousson wanted to move on to other characters at the time. And so he, he basically also said that th that was then and this is now. So he just wanted to move on to, to other things. And I guess I guess he thought that you could only do so many issues of Swamp Thing at that time. And, of course, you know, like even if you look across the street at Marvel, They've had certain number of issues of, of Man Thing, but they didn't have like a hundred issues of Man Thing. True, true. So, yeah. Even though you think that the character is very um, versatile, there were points of, of both characters' time when when the wrong writer got a hold of them and it did the things that you know. Yeah, that weren't, you, weren't right. Yeah, that in some uh, people's minds would ruin the character or ruin some storylines 
that would right. be told in the future. Yeah, you're right there, Gary. But I think it's also because of Ween, you know, having this uh, formula in his head saying that, not the bio-restorative formula, <laughs> the formula of storytelling, <laughs> which is he wanted to tap monster tropes and monster sub-genres in horror. You know, so he right. started off with, with the classic man becomes a monster, uh, kind of like Theodore Sturgeon's It. And then second issue, it was more Island of Dr. Moreau-ish, where he introduced... Uh, uh, also Frankenstein, I should say. Frankenstein-like. What well, also um, reminded me of um, Solomon Grundy. Yeah. Yeah, Solomon Grundy, the old JSA villain born from the swamp. Born on a Monday, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> yeah, very similar to that. I think they even had... I think even when Moore was doing um, some swamp thing, he might have even had Solomon Grundy in one of the issues. I think yeah, it was in a was it a, was in a DC Comics presents or a crossover issue maybe. Um, I don't it, know if it was maybe in the, even um, in the regular series. I I don't know, but I, I distinctly remember like some some story where Swamp Thing and Solomon Grundy appeared together. It, it might even been like a that Spectra series during the um, late eighties. Oh yes, 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 that was a classic too. Yeah. They, they tied it in with the invasion later on, but um, and it went right. off the rails. But in the in in the uh, beginning, it was fantastic. Yeah, the one with Tom Mandrake, right? And um, right, right. Yeah, that's a maybe that was it. Yeah, it could be. I mean, uh, you'd think someone like Moore, or at least any of the other savvy writers, would want to address that, right, Gary? Like, how can we have these? people being reborn from swamps all the time and uh there must be a link so you know they might have used that but you know i've never really equated the two characters with each other but it, that like you say there's lots of similarities lots and especially since solomon grundy showed up in the golden age as part of dc yeah. continuity yeah so you know um because of that formula that ween had you know wanting to tap these monster tropes he kind of ran out of uh of those genres or those subgenres of horror by the end i think even by issue 10 already and they had to insert an, a batman issue in there issue six which was great by the way but that seven, had, seven. seven yeah sorry seven yes. but that had really nothing to do with uh you know the horror tropes that that um len ween was was playing with before and after that you know that was more like a james bond-esque issue where he battled the conclave and this um, you know, villain that's very similar to Blofeld from from the Bond universe, right? With instead of a cat, right. he had a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and he mind control. Yeah, I was I was looking back at that issue the other day, and I was like, <laughs> in my, it was funny that he had a pet monkey, but for some reason, I didn't really think Vigerson drew that monkey that well, but. Yeah, it, it it was definitely weird looking. But you know, Wrightson draws everything with a with a skewed bent, so it it adds right. to the horror flavor. But yeah, that's not a traditional monkey at all. That that it, I mean, it's like Kirby anatomy plastered onto an ape. And yeah, then, and then I really shouldn't say anything bad against Bernie, but <laughs> oh no, I you know everything that Bernie touches is gold, even his bad art right. for me because. He just has this weird way of conveying his nightmares, or I think our nightmares, into print. But there are definitely instances where you see Bernie had to rush a panel, like with most mm. of these guys, because they were on deadlines, right, Gary? So yeah, there yeah. are definitely uh, many panels that I could point out where Bernie probably could have done more. 
but you know I don't blame the guy because he was a, a workhorse he worked really hard he never skimped on his work it wasn't laziness it was just this this obsession with detail and with um, sometimes you had to like um, go against your better nature and uh, quickly run through a panel uh, that seems less important to the story and that's where you get I remember when I had this copy of of number nine um, I used to take out some tracing paper and and try to trace this this cover ooh yeah, this is a classic. Without comic. damaging the the comic, of course. <laughs> no, of course, but yeah, I I don't blame you for doing this because this is one of the greatest Swamp Thing covers in my mind. They also used this image as uh, the first trade paperback that reprinted the first ten issues of uh, the run uh, way back when. It was just called Swamp Thing Dark Genesis, and uh, that was the image that I saw in the '90s that brought me back to the original series. Yeah, and eventually got me to to pick up the issues again. Um, it's just Bernie's covers are so so arresting, right, Gary? You can't unsee them once you've seen them, and this one's no exception. So, Gary, let's get into this, man. I'm excited to talk okay. about Swamp Thing issues nine and ten. I'm quickly going to give some details regarding these issues, just um, for the sticklers out there. Okay, Swamp Thing issue nine, covered by Bernie Wrightson. Of course, this appeared in um, December of 1973, but it, the cover date says March, April 1974. Um, and it was 20 cents, like we mentioned earlier. Lots of the comics back then were. Edited by right. Joe Orlando and writer Len Wein, artist Bernie Wrightson. Um, so, Gary, first off, normally what we do is we talk about a, a, a story in a brief synopsis. And uh, then we discuss the interior. So what is your synopsis for this issue in brief? Well, uh, to be honest, I, I went on um, Mike's Amazing World. Mm. And I wanted to use his words because when, when I was reading it off the DC app, I could I could remember the pictures, but I couldn't like really look at it in detail. But basically, it was, it was Swamp Thing returns to the... the the swamp area where he was um, created. And um, he's wandering around and he finds a barn that he wants to go into. That's right. And he finds a, a lab that, I, it, it says that it was it was once his lab. So that I didn't know about at first because I my first issue was number seven. So... Um, he also finds the alien sh- spaceship that has landed and was taking refuge in that barn. And the alien and the swamp thing fought for a while. And then he, the swamp thing escaped from the fight. And then also Matt Cable was with these this group of military people who were trying to capture the alien that's right so they they break into the barn and they sort of tie up the alien and they keep him captive and swamp thing sort of takes um resentment against that and frees the alien <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i mean swamp thing's been captured so many times he has an antipathy towards that so he when he saw this alien trapped, even though something was actually out for revenge for the alien destroying his equipment, 
right, Gary? Because that's the reason he headed back there. He's still a scientist at heart, uh, probably not in mind, if you take the later Moore run into account, but he wants right. to still find a cure or see if he can uh, effect a cure for himself by going back to his old digs in the swamp. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, at this, at this point, he doesn't, he doesn't know that he's... He thinks he's still a man. Yeah. And he does have so. the mind of Alec Holland in terms of he thinks in a scientific way. He analyzes things as a scientist would in many cases. But um, we haven't seen him actually doing any science. He tried in the first issue, but the beakers broke in his hands. It's too clumsy, too unwieldy, um, you know, and he's too strong to wield the delicate instruments of science. So, you know, but he still thinks like a scientist. And um, I think um, he wanted to use some of the equipment to see what he could uh, do to alleviate his situation. But then the alien seems to have dismantled it, right, Gary, to repair his ship. And that's what caused Swamp Thing to become enraged because this is yet another, you know, failure for him um, to regain his lost humanity. But like you say, Matt Cable, he's been tracking this alien because... Um, he and Abby were on holiday, <laughs> right? Uh, much deserved rest. Yeah, that 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 page where they're on the beach. Yeah, and her her, her designer bathing suit. I yeah. remember seeing that as a kid, and and of course I was you know encountered the girls at school, so I was like <laughs> never saw a woman like that before. Exactly, <laughs> man. Bernie writes, and I, I a lot of people uh, knock his women, but I think. That's, you know, unfair. His women are some of the most beautiful in comics, actually. You know, right. he seems incapable of drawing a handsome man. <laughs> you know, all of his men kind of look uh, a little bit uh, strange. But the women are all, you know, if he really wants to, to make them alluring, he can. If he wants to make them grotesque like an easy old witch or an old hag, yes, he can do that. <laughs> but, you know, that's why I, I always say that um, his uh, characters, most of his is his figures have been inspired heavily by Graham Ingalls, you know, um, and he's, Bernie's gone on record saying he's a huge Ingalls fan, um, Graham Ingalls, the famous EC horror artist. Okay, okay. But, but Graham Ingalls was, he could also draw a beautiful woman, but I think Bernie goes in one better by, you know, by drawing them even more alluringly. So, yeah, this was... Well, doing, doing this time, I don't really think that they pressured artist to to make every character like a movie star figure no i think that they you were put were sort of like told to stress to have um different features in the characters that would be interesting correct but that the artists weren't told to to stare at the tv and make tony stark look like you know Robert Downey Jr. or or or, or the you know this and that. Mm, 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 correct. So, yeah. You yeah. know, like even if you look at the Kirby's characters during this time, so I remember one time uh, I was talking to a young person. And they said, "Oh, Kirby didn't know how to make people look, you know, attractive." And I said, "Well, he was busy looking at." 30s movies from the 30s and the 40s where the, there were gangsters and he was making his characters sometimes look like gangsters and, yeah. and he wasn't busy trying to make his characters look like you know sean connery or roger moore or you know yeah. like so it depends on how the artist wanted to 
to draw on on his the face the models that he was using yeah exactly exactly yeah i think you're right i mean marvel and dc did have a house style when it came to superheroes but um you know uh, for this kind of title the anthology horror comic title and the you know horror titles like swamp thing you know that ran in a series i don't think they they cared at all especially not in the early 70s right gary they they had then realized that there were so many distinctive artists around i think neil adams even started that you know they how right, could you tell right. someone like adams to to follow a house style you can't because you'd be constraining no. him and you know so uh, same with bernie writes and i think this was during the time when they let the artists have free reign of course they still have had art editors but that was more for details not for you know a uh, whole wholesale change now famously during this time though uh, Carmine Infantino and the people at DC did, uh, you know, they were unhappy with the way Kirby drew Superman, and they replaced uh, <laughs> Kirby's Superman faces with, you know, uh, Kurt Swan Superman faces. That's why right, that right. looks so weird. But that was only for certain characters, you know. So they had a house style there, but like you say, for this, no, they would let Bernie draw whatever he wanted because everything looked so so damn great. <laughs> So you're right. But Kirby, no, I, you know, I would go on record now that we're on that topic, right, Gary, to say that he drew many attractive women. Uh, Sue Storm, you know, uh, I had a huge crush on, on the Kirby Sue Storm. Uh, Big Barda, I still have a crush on her. Yes, yes. I, I remember loving Big Barda and um, Beautiful Dreamer from, oh, the, from yes. the Forever People. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Kirby drew them. Yeah, he drew them to look like goddesses, and they did. You know, they were otherworldly, but still, there was real beauty to their features, not just the way he drew their body. So, you know, it depends on the reader. Like, if you like the style of drawing, of course, you're going to have some female characters in there you like. If you don't like Kirby's style, maybe everything looks terrible. But, you know, I think that's blasphemy. (laughs) (laughs) So um, to go on with the story, right, uh, Gary, we've got this mili- these military guys who drafted Matt Cable because he knows that area of the swamp because he's, in fact, the person who set up the lab for um, for the Hollands, you know, for Linda and, okay. and Alec Holland in the first issue. He was their friend as well. And right. um, so he knows this barn, this barn that he had, in fact, arranged for Alec Holland to use. And that's where they're going to uh, set up their base of operations. And this is just, um, I, I don't know if you would call this luck or fortune or misfortune on the aliens part that everybody wants to go to this barn, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because it's Swamp Thing who's looking for his equipment. It's Matt trying to get, get the military guys uh, headquarters to work out of where they can lo- locate this alien from. And then, you know, this is perfect for a, for a single issue self-contained story because everything comes to a head in this barn swamp thing encounters the alien and what a great design by bernie writes and i'm looking on page seven gary what do you think about that big splash page of swamp thing's first view of the alien see oh yes yes it's like a huge turtle in (laughs) in a in a suit yes yes (laughs) Yes, yeah. He's got these little... It's not, it's not quite a turtle because a turtle doesn't have that, you know, that head exactly like that. But that's that always is what it reminds me of is a, is a turtle in an astronaut suit. <laughs> yes. Got yes. A, actually, he's got a diving tank, like a scuba tank attached to its back. Exactly, yeah. 
And with some type of um, rifle. Yeah, some kind of energy lance, rifle, spear-esque yeah. uh, weapon. But look at the detail in that. That's okay. That's where you get an inkling of Bernie Wrightson's attention to these to the minutia. Because if you look at his illustrations for Frankenstein, the novel, and uh, his illustrated Frankenstein, this is how he likes to draw. I mean, the detail in that tank alone, and in the gear on the alien's uh, belt, and then in the Lance the weapon itself is just insane. What do you think about the detail there, Gary? Yeah, the the yeah all the machinery behind it, and then the the belt that the turtles wearing is, is yeah it's very very interesting technology. You know, like mm. it's it is amazing. It's definitely alien. I mean, he 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 set out to make it as alien as possible, and he succeeded. And it's it's not horrific that because the alien looks, it's kind of like a, an ambiguous image. It doesn't look as if the alien is malevolent, other than he's got a weapon, but he doesn't attack first. Swamp Thing, in fact, attacks him first, and then the alien right. uh, defends himself. And then we've got the classic scene, which I always equate with the Swamp Thing movie from Wes Craven, where Swamp Thing regrows the hand he just lost in this blast that the alien leveled at him. I love okay, it's, it's funny because like I've never actually seen that movie. Oh, right. I've heard people talk about it all the time. And 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 it's probably been on t TV enough that that I should have seen it, but I never did. I actually went to um forgive me for telling another story, no, but no. I actually went to a a convention doing the um I think it was the late seventies, early eighties, where Mike Ursulon was was at the convention, and he did a little speech, mm. and he actually was heavily involved in that Swamp Thing movie, and that was his project to get money to raise capital for the eventual Batman movie that came out in nineteen eighty. So. 89 so hmm. he that was his first endeavor to to get money for the hmm. batman movie right and right. since the swamp fan movie did somewhat okay but it didn't do get, get him enough capital it took him longer to get the batman movie done because of that right i didn't know that so we would have if something did better we would have had a batman movie much much yeah, sooner i oh. remember him showing different um scenes of um the stuntman in in the swamp thing costume running into the swamp while he was on fire he he explained how they had to use certain chemicals that would that wouldn't burn the person in the costume but at the same time would have like make it look like he was on fire and he had to quickly run into the swamp and get cooled off and then they could you know film do the rest of the movie and um so he actually showed like different developmental um you know like pieces of the movie yeah. you know it's only stages doing the, doing that convention wow i, I would have killed in the time when mm. it was um the conventions were like in different hotel rooms mm. and they would also have a small room off to the side where if somebody wanted to show like a, a movie or talk, give a lecture they would 
you know, tell everybody to go over to that other room and have a lecture. Right, um, right. It wow. wasn't, of course, back then it was, the conventions were very different than they, than they are. Um, today, yeah. <laughs> yeah, today. Uh, you would you would have mainly a dealer's room and then another two or three rooms and then that was it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've never been to any of those conventions, even the modern ones. I've been to some science fiction conventions in the UK, right, Gary? So I, right. this is all just from YouTube videos that I've seen. Uh, I've never even been to the States, you know, per se. So, you know. Yeah, I, I, can, I can understand your, your, you know, your, your background, but. Yeah, but I would have loved to go. That's my point. If I, I would have killed to to have been there. And of course, if I did grow up in the States, I would have nagged my dad to take me in the late 70s and 80s to those <laughs> things. I would have really... Well, just... that was the thing. I had to... Um, the first time I went to something like that, it was the Star Trek convention. And my father was, was at that time, he was afraid that I would get kidnapped so he actually drove me <laughs> to to the to the hotel and and d dropped me off and uh and then picked you up he even on. like had my mother like watch me go into there and then made sure i was safe and then <laughs> and then they both left yeah and, um yeah. i took the bus home and then um then i wanted to go my friend had given me a ticket for that and at that time you were able to get uh, a three-day pass probably for like less than $20. So I went back the next day and my father was like, why do you want to go again? And I was like, dad. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Now, now that you've been bitten by and the I bug. Used to, I used to, used to be able to buy what they called stills, which were these, these um, prints mm. of different um, scenes from, from movies or yeah. TV. So I, I, to this day, I have a print, a, a still of... Um, George Reeves as as Clark Kent. Wow, yeah. From from like you know the fifties yeah. Adventures of Superman's show, and so I have that I have that framed on my um my bureau. And the funny thing is, is my father looked like oh he looked like George um, Reeves. Clark Kent. Wow, in, in because he had suit. the similar type glasses and he had the similar receding hairline. Of course, my father was older, so. Yeah, you know that the George Reeves was at that time. So, but but so th when people say, "Oh, you don't have a picture of your father on your bureau," and I say, "Well, I have a picture <laughs> of George Reeves," and I always picture my father as as Amazing. George Reeves. So. Wow, <laughs> what a tale, <laughs> Gary. No, that's that's cool, man. So now sentimental value attached to that George Reeves photo. It's it's all these hidden stories behind things that people never know about. Isn't that true? Right? Everybody's got. You know some interesting uh, story connected to the things we love, right? So yeah. So I used as as yeah during the seventies, I used to try to go into New York City and go to these conventions. Um, I remember by trying to buy the like I said the first Swamp Thing issue I bought was number seven, and then I bought Onward. Yeah. And I tried to get the issues before that, but the, at that time they were very high priced. Of course, now they would be very low price but um at that time i think i some some dealer wanted um like five dollars for no issue number five at the time and i, wow. I kind of balked at that yeah that's a lot because for that i time. said oh it's it's only 
three, four months old. And he's, he said, yeah, but this is a hot series now. You, you wouldn't be able to get it. And I'm like, so I kind of balked at that, but I kind of regret that I didn't try to go back and buy. Yeah, some of the back issues. issues. Yeah, I myself don't own all, you know, the issues. I own them, of course, in collections and so forth, various collections over the years. Well, I, I don't own, own the original issues now, but... yeah. Yeah, I own maybe, of the 24, you know, Gary, of Volume 1, I own maybe 16, but most of them are not in, you know, I'd say they're fine, or, or, or maybe they're one or two that are very fine condition, but I'd say most of them are fine or lower. So you can't really, I mean, I wouldn't be able to, I, I, I don't even want to think about trying to fill up the entire run in a, in a near mint or a very fine collection that's going to be set me back you know financially <laughs> a couple of years worth so you know I'm, I'm happy with just reading it in collections and you know digital every now and then if i can't get a hold right. of other things but um you know i started collecting swamp thing seriously i'd say from volume two from the very beginning um and a lot of that had to do with the movie as well you know so from from volume two from the first issue onwards i've got everything um, and in fact, speaking about that, this alien, you know, uh, strangely enough, he will show up again, Gary. I mean, not not him, because it has a bit of a tragic ending. But uh, maybe we should get into that, right? It it like you said in your synopsis, Swamp Thing frees the alien, right? And then right. Um, one of the, I think his name was Samson, one of the leaders of the the military cadre. He gets into a fight with Matt Cable, and and everybody, in fact, uh, starts having a bit of a Donnybrook because. Some of them want to kill the alien. Some of them want to take him in because he could be uh, worth a lot to science and for the, you know, U.S. military industrial complex. And they get into an argument. But the Samson guy seems to be a xenophobe. You know, he hates aliens. He secretly wants to kill this alien. And then luckily, uh, Swamp Thing, you know, he comes to his senses because after the alien sort of knocked him out by collapsing his spaceship on top of Swamp Thing accidentally... He put him into the swamp, thinking he was dead, right? Uh, right. For the, in this type of solemn burial ceremony, at least in the alien's head, I think, because the alien seems to be pacifist. He hates violence. He will he will defend himself, but only to a point. Because after killing, seemingly killing Swamp Thing and knocking out one of the um, the soldiers, the alien seems to be yes. racked with guilt, right, Gary? So he refuses to to take any further violent action against the men. So that's why it's lucky for him that Swamp Thing set him free when he was tied around the tree near that, uh, you know, uh, at the camp of the soldiers. And while they're... Yeah, having, they, have, the, they yeah. have him, you know, like tied up with these, these chains and, and handcuffs. I don't know they, where they got those yes, manacles. Very high-tech uh, manacles, you know, obviously meant to probably hold something other than human uh, which uh, they bargained for, I think. The, you know, the guys back at the Pentagon when they sent this troop out, they probably knew that they were going to deal with something extraterrestrial, so they furnished them with some gear. But yeah, that that does look very incongruous for a, you know, a military group to have. But these guys are, you know, they're alien hunters, so they've probably had some special training related to this kind of thing, especially in DC, right? In the DC universe, <laughs> they probably have kryptonite bullets or something. For taking out Superman, who knows? <laughs> but uh, they, you know, end up getting involved in this fight, and then Swamp Thing um, has the time he needs to free the alien. And then the alien, uh, eventually, you know, he, he gets back to his ship, and then the the soldiers show up again. But he then 
he's got enough uh, he seems to be able to instantly uh, absorb knowledge or something because just from listening to them bantering around the fire he's uh, gotten enough of an understanding of our language to talk to them and he says that you know he's leaving now but he's severely disappointed in humanity and um, he could have you know he just wanted repairs on our world and he could have given much in return but now he just feels pity for us and then he right. takes off Gary and then what happens right after he takes off well it looks like he didn't repair his ship enough yeah, yeah. because so yeah it takes a nose well, maybe dive. he didn't have the, the proper fuel yeah yeah, it could be any of those reasons, right? It could also be that he, you know, was interrupted and he just wanted to get out of there and couldn't hold the yeah. the men indefinitely. And he thought that it, the repairs he'd already done was sufficient. But yeah, it turns out it's a, it's a suicidal gesture because um, as he heads for the stars, yeah, he takes a nosedive into the swamp and the spaceship explodes. Now, much later on during the Swamp Thing Volume 2 run, we'll see this alien's... Um, wife returned to earth to find his uh his remains i think she was called widow seed or something and that happened in, in swamp thing 81 of yeah volume I, two. I i did also try to read that a little bit it, it, it took place when um dc had its inv invasion um yeah. event i think that's right that's right gary yeah so you know um, so, yeah she's in continuity or we should say this alien is in continuity so and he's such a great design i think it's it's worth bringing him back at least uh, maybe just in a flashback or in a memory or something but um bernie had such a great flair with designing these monsters so uh but you know a great story a very sad ending um we would see you know endings like this later on again you know where swamp thing encounters some presence some alien presence that tragically learns that the earth is not a safe haven <laughs> for visiting aliens i'm specifically thinking about that story pog uh which was based off of um you know which alan moore did where these little cute aliens came to the swamp and they learned the hard way that earth is not a hospitable environment um so you know um very tragic story but then you know we head off into a story that's more in line with what we've come to suspect uh, to expect i should say for Swamp Thing, because we've got the return of a villain in in issue ten, right, Gary? So a classic. Yeah, that villain. that was. This is also the first time I got exposed to Arcane. Ah, like I said, I didn't I didn't get the first um, six issues, so I didn't really. Yeah, you, I didn't know about Arcane that much. Yeah, you didn't know who he was. You didn't know that he was actually the Swamp Thing, being set up to be the Swamp Thing's main villain. Uh, if you could say that, I, I guess he's the first villain who returns. Uh, you know, other than the the Mister E, who was the leader of the Conclave, who was sort of ever present in the background. Arcane is the first Swamp Thing villain that that seems to have staying power in this first series, and that's why he's become one of Swamp Thing's classic villains. If he's Lex Luthor, you know, uh, right. sort of. So um, yeah, he's. I mean, the cover again is great to issue ten, and and you don't know that it's Arcane at the time because Arcane looked vastly different in issue two and three, when the Swamp Thing first encountered him. So, you know, um, when I first read this as well, I didn't know it was Arcane until you know you read get into the story a bit, and he actually says he's Arcane. <laughs> you know, because you recognize the Unmen, which he they were already there in issue two and three, right, Gary? But 
Um, okay. I didn't know that. I thought this was an unmanned story where they came for revenge, you know, for their fallen master. But then it turns out they had somehow managed to transplant Arcane's brain into the body of an unman, or or a body that they created piecemeal, uh, right there and then. Um, right. At, at right. the behest, they, they got yeah. they got different scraps from graves and put it all together. Yeah, very Frankenstein monster esque. And at the behest of this little guy who's a brain um, perched on a hand, a <laughs> cranius. <laughs> He's always been. One of the classic. Now, the funny thing is, is um, Herman. When I was looking back at some of the old um, other stories I wanted to do, mm. there was um, DC had a reprint series called Black Magic. Yeah, was that Kirby's old? Cur- yeah, they were old Kirby stories. Mm. And there is one Kirby story where each each character in this house is a different um, part of the body. Oof. And and Hugo was was the was the was this big like Modoc um, brain being that was mostly a head and then little arms and, and legs. Wow! <laughs> I and, mean, I, and that came out like during nineteen seventy around this time. Yeah. So I remember reading that story over and over again, and then also reading this and 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 thinking that you know the character design was similar. Yeah, both of them. Uh, I I know which issue you're talking about. I uh, Billy, Billy um, my co-host on Into the Weird, he uh, you know has a collection that he once showed me photos of. I think it's it's just called Black Magic, the the collected right, uh, hardcover right. collecting Kirby stuff. And he showed me this uh, cover, which is in there of this little uh, Modoc-ish head sitting on this armchair. <laughs> With yeah, uh, I think Black Magic was a series that. Simon and Kirby had doing the the fifties, yeah. and, and um, at one time I bought like a long box of of comics, and one of the issues was in there was actually an issue of Black Magic from the fifties. Wow! And I, the funny, what well, the funny thing is, is I kept on look, looking at the artwork in that comic, and I thought it was Kirby. It looked a lot like Kirby, and one of the stories was was about these kids in a in a like um, some type of um, grammar school or middle school class, and they all like use their minds to create one big mind, sort of like Kirby had that concept of the uni mind. Yeah, from the Eternals. In yeah. the Eternals, mm-hmm. and so I definitely thought that that issue was Kirby. But then when I went and researched that issue, it was just somebody. It was when Simon and Kirby had left the oh, series. okay. And it was somebody doing Kirby-like artwork, and then they, they never explained who was the writer. Mm. But mm. I kept on saying to myself, oh, this it, this looks so much like Kirby, and yet it wasn't yeah. really him. That's strange. I mean, you would expect some people to want to to ape Jack's style because it's so successful right. and so distinct that you want to keep it going, right? So... That's why I've considered people like um, Frank Robbins, uh, you know, artists like that. I, I always considered them Kirby clones, even though they're not, you know. But, um, you know, it's because uh, so many people have been influenced by Kirby. You know, you never can tell when, when they're trying to do Kirby or when they're accidentally doing Kirby. But that well, they were probably... I, I guess Kirby was so popular at a certain time. Yeah. A lot of the artists tried to do 
similar artwork. You know, look at look at Gil Kane. He uh, mm. he did have his Kirby he, face. He ate Kirby a lot, and then he tried to to do his own um, work. That's right. That's right. He developed his own style. I mean, Barry Windsor Smith is another one, right? He, the early Barry Windsor Smith. He also did Kirby. But I think also, you know, Stanley was actively pushing for that. You know, he was saying that Jack's the best. Do what Jack does. You know, sometimes. Right. And but then, of at course, the ta- at that time, that's what they were doing. Yes. Yeah. And then, of course, you had the other end of the spectrum where you had John Romita dealing with the art chores on Spider-Man and the like, and that had a totally different style. So um, they had these two house styles that they were pushing art- other artists to follow. But Kirby's yeah proved, of course, so popular, uh, not just from the artists at Marvel, but everybody was influenced by him. So, you know, he crept into art. You're right. And uh, I would I would understand that it also cre- creeps into horror art, right, Gary? Because when Kirby did horror in the 50s, man, was it grotesque and very interesting to look at. So here, yeah, I mean, yeah. this, this alien story, though, um, basically... Uh, this is Len Wein playing with that concept that, that Stanley and Jack Kirby had during the 50s where they took the B-movies of that era, you know, and uh, it was kind of horror-esque, right, Gary? The the 1950s uh, sci-fi alien invasion movies. And um, he put this in as one of the tropes uh, of the issues that he wanted to write. So, you know, we right. dealt with the werewolf, we dealt with... We, we didn't deal with vampires, but we dealt with the Cthulhu-esque monster in issue 8, uh, and, you know, the Frankenstein-like stories in the very beginning, and now we've got an alien story. But rather than turning this into a horror story, it became a sto- story of pathos and, and drama and uh, a very, very sad ending. So I think it works, you know, um, on many levels. It was one of my favorite issues, at least as a kid growing up. You know, when yes. I, I had this issue in that long box that my uncle gifted me. Um, but then, you know, with the arcane story... Which, which wraps up the Ween and Wrightson collaboration here. This is more something returns to form. Now, I would classify this as a vengeful ghost story, uh, maybe, if there, if there is such a thing. I don't think there's a subgenre of horror like that, but this is a ghost story, essentially. What would you say, Gary? It's, it's definitely a story that would only be able to be done in, in Louisiana with with different aspects of, of, of the background of the mm. of the South. Yeah. Yeah, it's got the slave angle, you know, the the, the vengeful slaves who were mistreated by this uh, landowner uh, a hundred a hundred and, and odd years ago, Parmenter. And then the slave Black Jubal who had one arm who was uh, planning on marrying his sweetheart Elspeth, but the Parmenter landowner he wanted her for himself so uh, because black jubal put up resistance that him uh, burnt at the stake right so right. that's the background we get when swamp thing sort of encounters this old woman whose uh, name is antediluvian <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness uh, that that's a that's a great yeah, bit of a, a name there you know a pun pun ish kind of name uh, and isn't there another guy called Hunk Dory <laughs> in, the, in the issue as well? The, the, the convict. And there's a convict who shows up to strangle Antediluvian, but Swamp Thing ends up saving her. And then she decides to tell him a bit of a tale in reward, right, Gary? Yes. After that, we, we learn that there's a bit of a, you know, a history to the setting here. Uh, there's a, a graveyard nearby. But Swamp Thing is soon lured away from Antediluvian by these grotesque figures running through the trees. 
and he recognizes them as unmen. And they lead him to this very same graveyard that we've been just talking about. And then we see this fantastic splash page on, on a, page eight. That's what I'm looking at, Gary. Uh, what do we see there? Well, my pages aren't numbered, but... Um, this is the splash panel where he first encounters the unmen in the graveyard. And he sees... Uh, <clears throat> I'll take over, Gary. Don't worry about it. Um, Anton Arcane as an unman and you know that that look on oh yes yes yeah. i found it now it's Sorry. so bernie right i mean this is one of bernie wrightson's best splash panels ever you know he, he's so good at drawing weird anatomy and monsters and graveyards and then of course swamp thing and he's got all of this in the same panel um and you've uh, also got great lettering we should say uh i think at the time who was doing the lettering gasper saladino um, might be. Let me just uh, double check. Probably that. yes. Yeah, I think he worked for DC. Yes. Yeah, he did most of the lettering in Volume One of Swamp Thing, and uh, you've got Swamp Thing, of course, having his monologue in his mind uh, as the caption boxes, and then you've got Arcane showing up, and that expression on Arcane's face—that weird, up upturned uh, lip, you know, that hair lip, almost, uh, but but taken to the extreme, right, Gary? That that look would stay with Arcane until well into the Swamp Thing, uh, Volume Two with Alan Moore. And um, this you, would... you look at the the next page, number nine, with where you see the close up of his face. Yeah. Oof. And 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 the teeth. Gee whiz. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the body that they found, the guy never went to the dentist and. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, this is almost as bad as that story that uh, Bernie drew for for creepy Jennifer. Did you, did you ever read that? Oh one? yes, Oof. yes. I I I think I have that in a couple forms, yeah. and and that's a very t t terrible story. Yes. Yeah, this very similar. That both both characters need extreme dental work, you know, to correct that. But you know, we've got in a brief. <coughs> oh, excuse me, Gary. I'll cut that out of our recording. <laughs> Sneeze. Sorry. Uh, we've got this uh, brief uh, retelling of what, what happened after Swamp Thing defeated Arcane in issue three. And then showing the Unmen uh, reclaiming his shattered body, even though his mind was still, um, you know, in good condition. They transferred it into this body that they pieced together, this Unman form. Now, these Unmen, you know, they seem to be able to ignore, you know, hunger, sleep, fatigue. That that doesn't affect them. And yet, yes. they, they swim the, the Atlantic Ocean, you know, to get from Europe to, to the States to get revenge on Swamp Thing. But also because Arcane is still looking to put his brain into Swamp Thing's body. Now, right. why why bother? Because it seems that the, the, the Unmen bodies are quite sturdy and in sort of immortal in their own right, right, Gary? I mean, he's he's strong enough to, to defeat Swamp Thing in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And he's also, you know, um, he doesn't... He's, he's technically immortal. But yet he still wants Swamp Thing's body for his own. Well, it's, I think that the body that they put him in is looks very awkward. Like, one arm is, is longer than the other. and, and Ungainly. It doesn't yeah. look like he could stand up straight. It looks like he's a bit hunchback. Yeah, that's that's true. That could be a you know that could be the reason he wants Swamp Thing's body. So maybe it's a bit 
of vanity that he wants a, a better looking body than the one that he has. Yeah, and it's also tied in with his revenge that he wants on Swamp Thing for for destroying his plans, you know, earlier in the series. And just after they do get the upper hand, um, then after this battle that he had with Swamp Thing in this graveyard, uh, they're just about to, to take Swamp Thing back somehow, back to Europe, I don't know where, but um, to, to do this, tra- this dis- uh, transfusion or this, uh, you know, transplant, when suddenly the earth starts shifting, right, Gary, and the gravestone starts collapsing, and then right. who shows up to just in the nick of time? <laughs> the the character, the people from the story that the um, woman foretold. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Black Jubal and his uh, slave friends who were maltreated and killed by Parmenter show up. And uh, it seems that they were called from their graves by Arcane's repeated use of the words slavery and enslavement, and I'm going to enslave the earth. <laughs> you know, um, that is what stirred them from their graves. It might also have something to do with antediluvian, uh, you know, uh, affecting some, some power here, because she felt sympathy towards the Swamp Thing having, you know, and also a gratefulness for the swamp thing earlier even though that man right. who attacked her probably wouldn't have been able to kill her since she was already dead as well um but it seems that black jubal showed up just to fight the evil of arcane who's which is very similar to the evil of parmenter the guy who 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 killed him uh you know yes so that is a nice ghost story for me i like the, the when when we have this intervention from uh, ghost seeking justice, you know that 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 works for me. It's sort of a, um, you know, a cop out actually, Gary. You know, in a story that where Swamp Thing just, you know, fortunately gets saved by these ghosts, but I don't mind. It works for me. What about you? What do you think about the ending? Well, I I think at the at the time it worked for me, and I I like the fact that they got involved in in the fight and they. They basically took over, and Swamp Thing, I guess, was was tired from, from the battle, so he sort of like fell asleep, and he sort of just watched them pulling apart Arcane and and, and beating him up, and it, it worked. I I I liked it a lot at, yeah. at the time. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the same. It still works for me today. I mean, uh, Swamp Thing wakes up from this, like you say, the state of slumber induced by black jubal somehow black jubal just told him this does not concern you sleep so uh, that's what he did and then when he wakes up he sees these freshly planted graves these fresh headstones and one of them has arcane written on them in what appears to be blood so Mm. black jubal took them into the earth and they're buried there and uh that's it for arcane for the moment of course he would return uh, by supernatural means, and then he would marry magic with science yet again. But um, this is it for Arcane for the moment. And I think this is um, an, a fitting way for Bernie Wrightson to, you know, to end his uh, run on Swamp Thing, the character he created with Len. Um, you know, it's sort of like an ending uh, of sorts, right, uh, Gary? Not an ending to the story of Swamp Thing, but um, I think... Bernie sort of brought the story of Arcane, which started in the beginning. He brought it full circle. Well, the funny thing is, is I didn't at the time. I didn't know it was an ending. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed when he wasn't back the next issue. Yeah, <clears throat> same. Um, 
same. Yeah. They show these worms on the last panel, and I thought that was going to be the next creature that Swamp Thing was going to battle, but th they weren't in the next issue. That's right. I mean, Mr. Redondo is a great artist. Uh, he, oh, he picks he, up yes, fantastic. Yes. He, he mm. did this series, and then he also did Rima, which yeah, only lasted yeah. about maybe seven issues, I yeah. think. That was a gorgeous series also. Um, when I used to talk to people on the internet before they had Facebook, there was one gentleman who gave me a, um, a PDF of a, a Remo sketch that he had got from um, Nesta at some convention. And um, so he gave me a PDF of that to, to show me what the art looked like. And that was like gorgeous. Wow. And uh, since then I've, I've collected like a couple PDFs of other people who, who got similar sketches of him doing Lima. And the sad thing is, is I heard that he Nesta became blind towards his, his older yeah, um, he developed eye troubles. Age. You're right. Yeah, and that happens to a lot of these uh, classic artists. You know, George Perez recently went through that as well, right. and and a lot of them. Yeah, it's sad, uh, and of course, famously Wally Wood. So um, uh, I heard that. Now and there was also another artist, Frank Redondo, and I didn't know if the two of them were brothers or if that was just a popular last name. Oh, I don't know uh, about that at all. I, I could do some research on that. But yeah, I, I know um, that there was a Frank Redondo. I just never equated them as brothers. They could be, you know, because... Um, they, they, mean, both, they both were doing art, doing DC, doing the same time. And I think they came over doing the... Um, I think they were, they were part of the Filipino um, group. Invasion, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what I like to call it, the Filipino invasion. Yeah. But yes, and it, yeah. we're so lucky to have had those guys, right, Gary? Because I read the the um, the book about Jim Warren and his magazines, and then there was also a, another magazine um, that had a similar um, take on on on. It talked about the the Filipino invasion, and it, it actually it actually said that Jim tried to ex Warren tried to exploit them. Yeah, he wasn't paying them enough, and he was getting this fantastic art for. And he was a he was taking advantage of of their them their being naive and and taking lower pay, and then he would also keep all the artwork and 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 give them the runaround lots of times, and um, what happened was is is as they began to. To get enough money, they some of them went to, to Spain or different other countries and talked to artists over there and realized that they were getting um, taken advantage of. And then they came back to United States and they started demanding more money from, from Jim Warren. And then that's when he stopped using them. And then they went over to Marvel and DC and... Uh and the, 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 the black and white magazines over there yeah no um i i haven't i don't know about that but I, it sounds like a very jim warren thing to do right <laughs> for jim you, you'd expect that of him not the nicest man uh, in the industry back then 
and and uh, well i mean of all time actually not one of the nicest folks in comics but um you know seminal definitely gave us lots of great titles right uh right, gary right. but yeah these guys these filipino guys they would um be associated with swan monsters uh and drawing of monsters and magazines and you know for a couple of uh, years more after this issue of Swamp Thing. So, you know, um, Nestor Redondo, I'm, I was happy with what he gave Swamp Thing, but you could, you definitely missed Bernie Wrightson. But, you know, I'm happy with how the series ended. Of course, I would have had Bernie Wrightson stay on indefinitely, but that's not how it happened. So, yeah, but Nestor was a good one to follow up by just, yes, um, definitely. It, with the, especially with the way he drew nature and drew the trees and, and the swamp and the different animals oh yeah uh, of course later on like after nesta left the book then the different artists that they put on were not up to par i agree yes. and i think that's when it the they the decided, magazine really crashed yeah that's when they decided to cancel it with issue 24 but you know we would get something again in in many forms he's a part of the dc universe now very successful part i think you know, he's one of those characters that I know will always be there and will always return to, right, Gary? And he's one of my favorites. He's always he's my favorite DC character. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm always going to be talking about him in some form or other. But, Gary, listen, this brings us to the end of our discussion about these two issues. I'm going to have you again on the Long Box of Darkness. Like you've mentioned, you've got a lot of great comics uh, and a lot of great good, ideas. Good. So I, I really hope- love to be back. Thank you, Gary. No, I really appreciate it. Is there any way, um, uh, do you have an online presence at all? Twitter, Facebook, is there any um, way you want to... Uh, I am on I am on Facebook, just as myself, Gary Arkell. Right. And um, I'm not, I have a Twitter ID, but I don't really use it that much. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, I talk to, I talk, exchange emails with you on that, but I really, ha- I really don't go back and forth on, on Twitter that much. I don't really have my own podcast or, or, or blog. You just so, love uh, talking about comics. <laughs> yes, I, I, I try to. I've been on, on Marvel Noise uh, a couple of times. Yeah. With, um, so so the, uh, he, Steve has let me guest on that a couple of times. So, um, excellent, excellent. I have, I have done a, a couple of podcasts with him. That's great. No, I'm, I mean, Marvel Noise is great to listen to. I haven't listened to them in a while um, just because I've been so busy, you know, I, I haven't really been listening to, the, to a lot of podcasts, but um, I could recommend that. And Gary, then yes. I'm, I'm excited to have you back. But with that, uh, listeners, um, I'm going to take a quick break. But Gary, for now, it's goodbye, but it's uh, not farewell because you'll be back again on the Long Box of Darkness, I'm great, sure. Great, great. Thanks Thank for that, you. Gary. Greetings, guys and ghouls. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and this is The Monsters That Made Us. Join Monster Mike Manzi and I on the last Friday of every month as we celebrate all of the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios' classic monster series. From the Phantom of the Opera to The Creature Walks Among Us, we sink our teeth into all the gory details as we dissect the films that gave us some of the most iconic movie monsters of all time. The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more information, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Well, that brings us to the end of another Long Box of Darkness episode. Thank you for joining me, horror fiends. I'll be back soon, though, with episode two of season two of the Long Box of Darkness, where I'll be looking at volume two of Saga of the Swamp Thing. 
Not the Alan Moore stuff, no. I'll be looking at Marty Pasco's first 18 issues. I think it's a very underrated run. After that, though, look for Magazines and Monsters, where I'll be talking with my partner Billy Delicious on his podcast about Alan Moore, Rick Veach, John Totalbin, and Stephen Bissett's Saga of the Swamp Thing. Until then, if you want to reach out to the show, you can do so by emailing darklongbox at gmail.com or following us on Twitter at darklongbox. Check out the website at www.darklongbox.com. So thank you, constant listeners. Keep it creepy, keep it cool, and as a certain Mistress of the Dark likes to say, pleasant screams until we meet again. Bye-bye.